Hello, this is Diana. Thanks for joining my podcast, Journey to the Ink Pot. I'm not teaching a particular curriculum, just sharing about some aspects of writing that might be helpful to you as a beginning writer. Let's talk about finding that character. Have you ever read a book and found that even when you got halfway into the book, you haven't really identified with the main character? Just saying they have brown hair and blue eyes and are six feet tall doesn't necessarily tell your reader about that person. One of the well-worn ways some writers describe their character is to have them look in a mirror and describe themselves. It's a bit overdone. You need to be a little more creative in sketching out your main characters without making it quite so obvious. Eyes that crinkle when they smile, a habit of running their hands through thin hair, or something they do when they laugh, all help to define the person you're writing about. Their conversations, which show impatience, suppressed anger, wistfulness, all help define a personality. What helped me most was people watching. Instead of just making up a character, I chose a model, so to speak, from someone I observed. Now, people watching is something we all do. At parks, airports, meetings, social gatherings, etc., you might see a person who fits the character you seek to portray, and you see how they are dressed, their their mannerisms, their build, or their figure, and you keep that picture in your mind when you're writing. You can practically hear them talking in your manuscript. In Martha, I was searching for a model for Nathan, who played a major part in the book. He was a very strong, orthodox Jewish man, and I didn't know quite how to describe him until I saw a group of Orthodox Jews in the airport one day. One man fit exactly how I wanted to portray Nathan. I watched him carefully, trying not to be obvious. His mannerisms, how he waved his hands, scowled, etc. He was slightly on the portly side, but not overly so. He was nice-looking, in his thirties probably. Everything about him was my Nathan. So I tucked the mental picture of him away, and as I was writing about Nathan, I could see him in my mind and describe him as the readers, so the readers could see. We write from life. People in our lives pass through, but the memory of them remains. The mother of a friend of mine had a serious stroke and was confined to a wheelchair for years. Because the stroke affected her right side, the right side of her mouth drooped, and her speech was garbled due to that paralysis. So I merely changed my character in my book to the protagonist's father, but I could describe exactly how he talked using her mannerisms. Now, the five husbands I portrayed in Journey to the Well and the sixth man, who was a womanizer, were patterned after men I'd met in a singles group at the church. I was attending at the time and just uh, discovered, well, I was recovering from an unhappy divorce. I was lonely, and this seemed like a nice, safe venue to have some fellowship. Incidents with these guys made me want to just stay home Saturday night and read a good book. They weren't what they seemed at first. I thought that, uh, I guess the old cliche, wolves in sheep's clothing. They seemed nice enough on the outside, but after a few dates, the veneer wore off. They thought a divorcee was fair game. They made good studies for the characters I needed, though. In my second book, Martha, I pondered how to show her And in the age she lived in, an unmarried young woman was looked down upon. Something had to be wrong with her. A woman in charge of her own household? That was a rarity. A married woman who didn't produce children was thought to be cursed by God. Again, people felt the woman must have done something to offend God. 
Now, after her mother's death, Martha needed to care for her elderly father. A love interest and possible suitor was thwarted. She's under the authority of her father since he's the elder male in the household. But when he dies, she finds she must submit to the authority of her brother, Lazarus, who is several years younger than she, but now the only male in the household. Since she practically raised him, it goes against the grain. Yet he has the right to rule over her. It is hard for her, but she can't go against the customs of her people. While Martha couldn't change her circumstances, I wanted to show her heart and her humanity. I didn't see her as just a bossy woman who made life difficult. She had dreams of a family and children, just like any young woman of her time. Now, the raising of Lazarus was a very intense portion of the book, but I wanted to show Lazarus' sense of humor, which was a great part of his personality in the book. This scene is after the crowd is gone, and Lazarus and his sisters are alone. He's weary from his ordeal, uh, but his sense of humor is still coming. A sense of shame rose within her heart. I doubted him. I thought because he didn't come right away that he was not coming. I couldn't understand. Mary beamed. Yet he knew all along what he was going to do. Lazarus put a hand on Martha's shoulder. I would have felt the same if it were you, dear sister. Do not sorrow for what is past. Let us rejoice in today and be thankful. With a yawn, he turned towards his pallet. I, for one, feel I've not slept in days. Let us take our rest. There will be some curious visitors tomorrow as word spreads. I feel like a prized ram on exhibit. He lay down and closed his eyes. Martha and Mary could not help but continue to stare down at him, reluctant to leave his side. Finally, Lazarus opened one eye and looked at their anxious faces. Don't worry, he grinned. I shall still be with you in the morning. Well, obviously that dialogue is not in the scriptures, but haven't you wondered how you'd react if a loved one thought dead was brought back to life in front of you? Martha was always true to her character, her sense of duty warring with her heart, especially in the brief romance with the Roman centurion. I wanted to pray, portray her yearning for love and a family, even if the object of her love was not of her people. The temptation was there, the possibility of what she longed for, and then the desolation and agony of having it taken away again. Haven't all of us at some time in our lives experienced unrequited love? Puppy love in grammar school over a boy we liked that didn't like us back. Going steady in junior high or high school only to have them change their minds and choose someone else. Do you remember sitting by the telephone waiting for that certain person to call that never did? The experience of our lives, good or bad, shape who we are. And as a writer, there are things that make our books come alive. You can write from those experiences as opposed to making something up, and your reader knows the difference. Locations can be changed. The person you're picturing can be changed to protect them if they're still alive. She was a little woman about five feet two. Tall, uh, well, she had golden braids that hung down her back. She never cut her hair all her life. In younger days, she wound the braids around her head. Her father was a tailor in Czechoslovakia, and he brought his family to the U.S. when my grandmother was about 18 months old. As with others, they went through the famous Ellis Island. She spoke English in school, but at home they spoke Bavarian. Now, grandmother had gentle hands, and her favorite expression was, Bless your heart. 
She lived in a little white clapboard house in Los Angeles with Cecil Bruner roses growing in a lattice over the door. Everything she planted grew and flourished. She had an amazing green thumb, and I loved to go to Grandma's house. She was a widow. Her husband died in the influenza of 1917, and she was looking for something to fulfill her life, and she became involved in a group called the I Am. She wore white, and on Sunday she went to temple. But she had strange pictures in her living room that kind of bothered me. They were bearded men like prophets in shades of purple and lavender. They looked straight at you so their eyes would follow you around the room. My grandmother told me they were the ascended masters, and Jesus was one of them. That's all her group considered him to be. She belonged to this cult of the I Am for over 35 years, and in her 80s, after she came to live with my mother, she began doing strange things. My mother would wake up in the middle of the night and find my grandmother at the foot of her bed, staring at her. There were evidently other incidents, but mother kept them to herself so as not to alarm the family. One day my mother left on a trip to Arizona with two friends, intending to be gone a week. The woman who stayed with my grandmother days when mother was at work offered to stay with her for the week. Well, I got a phone call one day, and the caregiver was frantic. Grandma was out of control and saying strange things. I rushed over there and found my grandmother very upset that we couldn't understand her. I realized that from a few words she taught me that she was speaking Bohemian, the language of her childhood. To make a long story shorter, we called 911 and she was taken to the local hospital. My sweet little grandmother, with the gentle hands, was snarling at me, swearing like a sailor, and the eyes that looked back from her face were not my grandmother's. It took four strong nurses to tie this little woman down in restraints. The eyes that looked back at me, I couldn't forget them. It was my first glimpse of demon possession, and I knew nothing about that subject. I was terrified. Her involvement in in this cult had finally caught up with her, and the enemy was showing his hand. I ran out of the room and got on the phone. It took me an hour and a half calling different friends to trace my mother down to a massage table in Sedona, Arizona. In a few words, frantically, I described what was going on, and mother and her friends immediately jumped in their car and raced home. Her life is another story I'll tell sometime. Claimed to have found Christ, was now singing in the Catherine Coleman Chorale. Catherine Coleman was an evangelist in the 60s and 70s, and There were major things going on in her meetings. There were healings, all kinds of things, uh, wonderful things that God was moving in that group. Mother managed to get my grandmother there after she was back to normal and released from the hospital. My grandmother was healed, delivered, and experienced Jesus at that meeting. Finally, without a doubt, she knew who Jesus really was. Now she was my sweet little grandmother again. She was baptized six months before she died at the age of 90. I tell that story because when you're describing someone with demon possession, you better know what you're talking about. My grandmother became demon-possessed, the demon-possessed mother-in-law, Athalia, in Journey to the Well. We do write from life. Someone once said God never promised you a rose garden. Too often we deal with the thorns of life. Yet God never wastes events in our lives. 
We don't learn lessons on the mountaintops. We learn in the valleys of life. As the 23rd Psalm tells us, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, death of the spirit, death of our dreams, losses, etc., I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. If you're a Christian writer, make the Holy Spirit your co-author. There's no problem, even in writing a book, that he can't handle. Many times I despaired on the direction of a chapter or a scene and couldn't figure out how it was to go. Finally, I would pray, give it to him. I'd wake up the next morning, and the scene would be clear in my mind. Let God use the incidents in your life to flesh out your characters. Make certain scenes come to life, even helping you find the characters you need for a story. Well, once again, my email address is writerlady75 at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you with questions or comments. My podcast is on rss.com slash podcasts slash inkpot. This is Journey to the Inkpot. Until next time, may God bless and inspire you.